Hello and welcome to the Legacy of Liberation podcast. To mark the 75th anniversaries of some of the most important battles of the Second World War, this series explores some of the cemeteries and memorials from that conflict and what they mean to us today. I'm Lucy Kellett. And I'm Glyn Prussell. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. So like, subscribe, share and review wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, this episode focuses on D-Day and the battle for Normandy. So far in this series, we've covered the Great Escape in Poland, we've talked about the battles of Kohima and Imphal in northeast India, we've looked at Monte Cassino and the, the campaign in Italy, but now we've reached probably the most famous battle of the Second World War in the West, one of the most famous military campaigns ever, Operation Overlord, the Allied landings in Normandy in the beginning of the liberation of France. And it began, of course, on the 6th of June 1944 on D-Day. Because that's such a momentous event uh, and there are so many places of interest in Normandy, we decided to make two episodes. So the first one is focusing on D-Day itself and the cemeteries related to the beach landings that day. And then later this summer, we're going to have another episode exploring the wider Normandy campaign and some of those cemeteries that are off the beaten track. So, Glyn, I've never been to Normandy before, and just before we go, I wanted to get a better sense of the geography and the distances that we're talking about, as well as sort of key sites and towns in the region. Well, I think one of the things that people are often surprised by is how small an area this is. We're talking just about the the Commonwealth sector, so Gold, Juno and Sword beaches. You can drive from one side to the other in about an hour. So really not a particularly big, expansive landscape. Really, we're talking about the area from here. I've got this this map in front of us. So here, Aramanche in the west, uh, Mm -hmm. Gold Beach, all the way through Juno and Sword to a place called Wistrom, where many of the cross-channel ferries now arrive, this port, uh, and the famous Pegasus Bridge near Ronville in the east. And really, that's the extent of the of the Commonwealth landing zone. Of course, then it, it extends a little bit, and you've got cities like Bayeux uh, and Caen, which was really the focal point for the Commonwealth forces fighting in Normandy in the, the days and the weeks and months after D-Day itself. So not a huge area, but lots of variety within that. And so what kind of terrain are they fighting over? Is this mainly countryside? Well, of course, you've got the, the beaches themselves. Um, and now Juno Beach is probably the best preserved in terms of giving you a sense of, of a landing beach. Of course, you've got the American sector also off in the, the west, and most famously Omaha Beach, the, the beginning of Save it, Private, Saving Private mm-hmm. Ryan, uh, one of the most kind of famous depictions of the, of the D-Day landings. Um, but beyond the, the beaches, you have kind of rolling countryside, little villages that saw a huge amount of fighting after D-Day. Um, and in places, you've got the famous Normandy Bocage. It's a very thick tall hedgerows uh, up on earth banks uh, alongside very narrow roads and that caused real havoc particularly for the tank crews during the Normandy campaign and then as you move out uh, and beyond that you come into to slightly larger places too so a huge amount of uh, of different things to go and see and do and, and actually for a tourist or anyone who's interested in, in this history uh, it's a fascinating place to go because you see so much within a quite a, a short space of time. We've got uh, 18 cemeteries, right? Yeah, area. and they stretch from everything from little churchyards mm-hmm. up to huge uh, concentration cemeteries, the likes of, of which you'd see on the battlefields of the First World War, huge big war cemeteries. So again, a huge amount of variety, very interesting architecture, and all situated, of course, in what is already a very historic region. 
Our journey began early in the morning at Portsmouth when we got on the ferry bound for Normandy. We began our journey through Normandy at the eastern end of the Commonwealth landing zone on D-Day at a place called Ronville. We've just walked into Ronville Churchyard and can see in front of us quite an imposing uh, Gothic-style church in a separate bell tower. Uh, next to them lie the graves of uh, local villagers, a mixture of granite headstones and wooden crosses here. Uh, it feels very still, it's very sunny, very peaceful. You can hear the sounds of children from nearby school. And around the edge uh, of the churchyard, against the wall, uh, lie the graves of airborne troops, 47 in total. And of course, these were the first uh, amongst the Allies to land in Normandy uh, on the night of the 5th and 6th of June. And they were tasked with capturing the nearby bridge over the canal near Caen. Um, but quite a, a number here. How do they come to be buried in this churchyard, Glenn? Well, I think many of them were buried by local villagers. And you just mentioned the graves behind us. There's a real sense of intimacy, isn't there? Mm. That kind of local care over these graves. They're right alongside the graves of people who, mm. who've lived here, perhaps even for generations. And I think shortly after uh, D-Day, many of these, these men were buried here in the churchyard. I mean, looking along this row, uh, all the graves we can see are 6th of June, 6th of June, 7th of June, uh, 7th of June, we can see the, the insignia of the of the parachute regiment. I love that, the parachute yeah. <laughs> uh, inscribed on the top, that, that you know, with the wings on either side, and then here a glider, a glider pilot, and of course, uh, in front of us, the grave with all the the wooden crosses that visitors have left, which is Lieutenant Den Brotheridge of the Ox and Bucks, the, the unit that, that Richard Todd served in, uh, and just behind that, can you see that that plaque? Now oh, my yeah. French. Uh, I think, hopefully, I've, I've translated this right, but it's, it's recognition of the first English soldier who died um, at the, the Pont du Beneville um, Pegasus Bridge, as we know it, on the 6th of June. Mm-hmm. And just underneath, underneath in memory, uh, the family Gondre, the first family to be liberated. Were the casualty numbers high for airborne troops on D-Day? They were quite high. Um, obviously, it's a really dangerous thing to be doing, uh, landing. Uh, in wooden gliders or, or parachuting down. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I heard that um, they would actually be knocked out by the landing and they were prepared for that and understood that for a few minutes they'd, they'd be unconscious before they could actually get out of those planes. Well, that's right. Uh, and of course, you know, they don't have engines to be silent. Uh, they're, being, they're being pulled along by, by aeroplanes. Um, it, it was a hair-raising experience. <laughs> um, and of course, then they were surrounded by enemy troops. Um, they're in the heart of the action. Um, they have the element of surprise. So, you know, in many ways, that's on their side um, before the Germans know what is happening. Pegasus Bridge has been secured. I mean, if anything, the, the seizure of Pegasus Bridge is one of the most successful airborne operations of, of that day. Um, things go much worse for the, some of the American paratroopers in the West. Um, but Pegasus Bridge certainly was, was a big success. And looking along, they seem to be mainly British casualties, right? Yeah, the, the, the casualties here, the, the, the dead here of the, the parachute regiment uh, are all British. I think just further down we can see there's a grave of a German soldier. But these are very early on, and I think that we're going to see something a little bit different when we walk through to see the war cemetery next door. 
Should we have a look at the visitors book? Page after page filled with uh, comments from visitors from across the UK, across the world. We've come into Ronville War Cemetery and we're standing underneath the shade of the trees which run around the edge of the cemetery, looking out over the, the Cross of Sacrifice, the rather lovely shelter building with the yellow brick, and of course row upon row of headstones, many of them from the 6th of June, from D-Day, over 200 of them here, of the very first casualties of the Normandy campaign. You can see many with the insignia of the parachute regiment, but there are many others as well. You can see the maple leaf of Canadians, the insignia of the Royal Engineers, and, and many, many more. Um, a real demonstration of the the extent of the fighting here that, that happened after D-Day. But why, Lucy, are they buried here alongside the churchyard? Well, as we could see in the churchyard, was, there was very little space for the, the graves that were there around the edge of the wall, and uh, inevitably there were more bodies that needed to be buried, and this was just a, an empty field next door to the churchyard, so it was decided that it would be a good place to uh, bury those um, people from D-Day, and then from subsequent actions during the Normandy campaign. So uh, that's why, as you say, there's a, a huge variety of roles and regiments represented here, 2,400 graves in total. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the, the, the cemetery was originally known as the Airborne Cemetery, and in the middle we can see a, a monument, a contemporary monument, to the 6th Airborne Division. But, of course, the story here is it's much wider. I visit the, um, the war cemetery at Ronville, near Pegasus Bridge, where I was was during the war, but I landed just behind the church at Ronville. This is Bill Gladden, who served with the Airborne, and he landed near Pegasus Bridge early on D-Day. And the two of my, my dear friends rested in the, um, in the graveyard at Ronville, and I like to visit them every year. That's it. Although I, I didn't last long, I, I went over on the 6th of June, 44, I was wounded on the 18th of June, 44, and I never come out of hospital until 1947. I was three years in hospital. We're standing in front of the grave here in Ronville War Cemetery of Private Cortay, Emile Cortay of the Parachute Regiment, who died on D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944, age 19. But in front of the grave, alongside the flowers, we can see all kinds of things little crosses that have been laid by a school party that's clearly visited recently, a little flag, some little wooden crosses with poppies on them, even a little wooden cross with a picture of a meal and some knitted flowers around it. And there's one reason, above all else, I think, why these are here, and it's explained by the inscription. Yeah, had you known our boy, you would have loved him too. Glenn, his paratroop dog, was killed with him. So Kotai was part of the parachute regiment who jumped with a dog, para-dog, paratroop dog. Glenn was his name, uh, who was killed alongside him. And it seems from these crosses and these tributes that actually Glenn attracts as much um, remembrance as his owner, Emil. I can see just at the back here, there's a, a little tennis ball um, with a couple of red hearts coloured in pen, and it says, For Glenn. And I'm not really sure what to make of this. It's interesting. I don't think I've seen anything quite like this. Uh, and clearly this grave attracts far more attention than any of the mm. others around it. I can't see any tributes uh, on any of the other graves. There's a, a little Canadian flag just mm. in the distance on the grave of a, of a Canadian soldier. 
interestingly, a group of school children have just come into the cemetery and we can see already that they're gravitating towards this grave. I did kind of think that the, uh, the number of tributes, the nature of the tributes, perhaps a bit excessive. I noticed in the um, visitor book also, it, it talked about never forgetting Glenn, the, the paradox. Um, but thinking about it, seeing these children here, seeing them reading these graves, these headstones, engaging with the personal inscriptions, kneeling down to take photographs, it does make you think perhaps if stories like that help people to um, humanise these graves to think about the, the real people that are buried in the earth here and think about how they would have um, responded at the time, what things they would have uh, had to comfort them, to support them, um, then in a sense it's a, a very uplifting story and one that needs to be told. After the break we'll continue our journey through the cemeteries of D-Day, visiting Benny Suomer, Rears and finishing at Bayer War Cemetery. To mark 75 years since D-Day and the liberation of Europe, the CWGC is creating a sound archive called Voices of Liberation to capture people's voices and reflections on the Second World War and the CWGC sites of remembrance across Western Europe, the Mediterranean and the Far East. Want to contribute or listen to the voices recorded so far? Just visit the website at liberation.cwgc.org. What does it take to ensure those who died in the two world wars will never be forgotten? This June, discover the answer at the CWGC Experience, a unique new visitor attraction that will shine a light on the work of the remarkable organisation at the heart of remembrance of the war dead, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. A trip to the battlefields of the Western Front is not complete without a visit to the CWGC Experience. I'm reborn our route with balloons up and destroyers making sure there were no subs around and all that stuff. Ken Hay was just 14 years old when the Second World War began in 1939, but as soon as he turned 17, he volunteered for service. And he saw his first action in June 1944, just off the beaches of Normandy. And we went over, and of course you saw the actual carnage there of still bodies floating in the water and so on. Nobody really seemed to know where we were going, but we just kept going inland. Until in the end we turned into a field, and we woke up in the morning, and it was a lovely bright morning, and oh, it got hot, and we took our battle blouse off, and then a shirt came off, and eventually we finished up just laying there in pants sunbathing. Um, and this, this was war, we could, we could take this, you know. We could hear some banging in the distance, but not too far, not, not too close. So then we moved up and we came to Shur, where we were relieving the 15th Scottish Division. They had been hammered, absolutely hammered. There were two lads coming down the centre of the road. One was a Lance Corporal, the other one was a private. Um... They had no gear, no no equipment, no rifle, no nothing. One, the, the Lance Corps was leading the other one by the hand as they walked down the centre of the road. I don't think they even saw us. And the, the, the young, the private, his, there was blood dripping off his hand and they were just making their way back. And they'd really been hammered. I was wandering up this, this road by myself and there was this line of chaps all, all laying on the side of the road, all asleep. And I called out, 
what are you doing? And then I realised that the one in front only had half a body. Another one's tongue was out, and you've no idea how long a tongue is. Somebody else's brain, and so on. Uh, uh, it was quite vicious. There obviously a patrol going out, and they'd been caught by a shell, or, or it must have been a shell to take the limbs off. It wouldn't be machine guns. And um, that was the sort of, that was the battlefield. We're sitting here in bright sunshine at Hermanville War Cemetery, which is uh, less than a mile from Sword Beach. And that's the first beach that British troops liberated on D-Day at about 7.25 in the morning. It's really hard to imagine what it must have been like on that day. Mm. On a day like today, you know, the, the wind is rustling the leaves. We can hear the birdsong and in the distance, the sounds of the waves and the sea. Yeah, really hard to, to reflect on the experience of those coming ashore, the South Lancashires, the East Yorkshires, who managed to come ashore at Sword, push up, take Hermanville, liberate this town. Thankfully, uh, there were fewer casualties than expected uh, on this beach. Um, I think they had anticipated losing up to 70% of the, the men that landed that day, but in fact, by the end of the day, there were about 600-odd who had been uh, killed or wounded. It was really hard for Allied commanders to predict what they would face coming ashore. Um, Sword Beach is just to the west of uh, Weistrom, the big ferry port where the, the, the ferries come in today. There was a, a problem with the tide, an unusually high tide, but really it wasn't coming ashore that was the big problem. It was once they went inland. The Germans had laid minefields on either side of the roads. They would set vehicles alight and then trap soldiers um, advancing uh, under, under gunfire. So the, the problem for the 3rd Division, the British 3rd Division, wasn't so much the landings, it was pushing up and making that space and, and making those inroads. Yeah, I think for me that's one of the most compelling aspects of, of D-Day and remembering it is just the, the precariousness of it all. It still feels to me somehow as though it might go wrong whenever I watch those films or, or read about it. So um, it, it could easily have, have all gone the other way. And you think about uh, Eisenhower sitting there at Southwark House, I was at the other day, that famously has the, the map on the wall showing the um, preparations for the movements of the ships down to the beaches at Normandy and him having to decide in just a few minutes which felt like a, a lifetime to him um, whether to go on the morning of the 6th of June or, or not and of course he famously wrote these two letters one in which he took full responsibility for the failure to gain a foothold in France and it's so spine tingling to read those and, and think about how easily it, it could have all gone wrong. And it all came down to the weather at the end of the day. You know, months of preparation, 130,000 infantry troops ready to land, thousands of ships, aircraft, a huge amount of, of thinking and, and planning. And in the end, it came down to that small window of opportunity. And, and the meteorologist, Stag, who advised Eisenhower, um, if he'd have delayed, I think most historians agree, it would have been disastrous. Two extra weeks, perhaps even more. The Germans may well have, have learned of the Allies' plans, um, the troops would have been demoralised. Um, it was the right decision, but, you know, my goodness, what a dramatic moment. But even when it went well, there was still a price to pay, of course. I was going to say, it always feels sort of ironic, doesn't it, to sit in a cemetery and talk about the, the success of a campaign like that when you're surrounded by, by the dead. Got a little passage here, actually, of a description of Sword Beach that day, mm. which stands kind of in stark contrast now to these, these rows of neat graves shining in the, the sunshine here. One observer described the beach as looking like a sandy cemetery with unburied new dead and half undead, missing arms and legs, their blood clotting in the sand. I, I think this cemetery was originally called Sword 
Beach Cemetery. Um, the name was changed to Hermanville. You find that with the Second World War, they tend to, to name them after the place rather than the, the battlefield feature, as you might have seen in the First World War. But there are still little remnants, little things, little touches here that, that remind you of that, particularly the grass that's just to our just to our left, the kind of grass that you would see on mm. sand dunes. And of course, coming into the cemetery, we, we walked over that, that red triangle on the floor, the symbol of the British Third Division. Next, we visited Benny-sur-Mer Cemetery. Turn right onto Hoy des In 200 metres, turn left onto Rue de Marine Dunkirk. Coming in off the main road. And the name of the cemetery is in French too. Is that for the French Canadians? Yeah, the two yeah. languages of Canada. It's not unusual. Um, but we can see here the entrance on the right. It's been changed, hasn't it? Mm. Originally, it would have been in off the road. Just fields... As far as the eye can see, there isn't yeah. anything else. I'm guessing that road wasn't quite so busy when the cemetery was first built. I love these trees. Yeah. It's an avenue. Oh, yeah. It's going to say leading you to the uh, Stone of Remembrance with some newly laid flowers there. These kind of, what would you describe those as? Some little turrets, towers either side. Yeah, the towers the, with the pergolas round with the wisteria climbing mm. up always find this cemetery quite stunning on arrival it seems quite grand there are lines of canadian maple trees of course either sides of mm. the, either side of the plots it's a lovely touch isn't it mm. um, and i always like looking at the canadian regiment names incredibly evocative over there we've got corporal bell the stormont dundas and glengarry highlanders mm. here we've got private austin the lawn scots peel dufferin and halton regiments the historic regiments of canada uh, it marks them out as very different from, from the British regiments, of course, with their own history, their own traditions, their own proud traditions. Uh, and passing some of these graves, we, we've seen quite a few from the Regiment de la Chaudière, the, the French-speaking regiment. Mm -hmm. So French-speaking Canadians coming ashore at Juno Beach, fighting their way up through the wheat fields, through the machine gun fire. Uh, and one wonders for them whether there was something particularly special about, about mm. liberating people who spoke their language. There are over 2,000 graves here, so this is another example of a concentration cemetery where graves were brought in uh, after D-Day throughout the Normandy campaign. And because of that, there are actually quite a few sets of brothers here, nine in all at the cemetery. And you brought me to the graves of, it looks like, the Westlake brothers. Yeah, and we have two together here, but there's also a third one. So it's a unique instance of three brothers uh, at this one cemetery, George, Thomas and Albert Westlake. My goodness. Thomas and Albert were found t together near each other when they died, and so they are buried next to each other. Very poignant to see them have the, the same personal inscription, God's greatest gift, remembrance. The first night we were there, uh, the German bombers came over, quite low actually, dropping bombs, and one fell very close off our port bow, and I remember being doubled up and, and winded literally by, by the blast. This is Royal Navy veteran Richard Llewellyn, who was at Gold Beach on D-Day. After that, our sole job was to, we had forward observation officers on shore, also air spotters, and they told us what targets, whether it was just a single tank or a gun battery or a group of soldiers or whatever, and we just spent our time firing at whatever we could to disrupt the defences. And I think we were there for about three weeks. We, we moved along to Sword Beach. The, the Brits were having problems breaking out from Caen, and the Germans had very strong defences there. So we helped destroy 
the German defences on the south of the city. This is Ria's war cemetery. Looks very pretty. And very windy. Let's go and have a look. We've just come into the shelter at the back of Ria's war cemetery here um, to get out the wind, which really picked up this afternoon. Um, we're not far from Gold Beach, so that's the other beach that the British troops assaulted on D-Day. And, of course, it's uh, most famous, perhaps, for the Mulberry Harbour, the artificial harbour that was built there, um, the town of Aramanche, in the days following. It's a reminder of the, the importance, not just of the bravery of the assault troops, but the ingenuity, the logistics, the organisation, and the planning that was required afterwards. You really struck as we walked into this cemetery by the number of graves of Royal Navy personnel that we passed, um, stretching all the way from June through August and September. A real reminder of the importance of the sea. Um, Aramanche was a, a real hub because of the, the harbour uh, in terms of getting people, equipment, machinery, munitions into Normandy. The battle of the build-up, which was so important to the success of the landings. The 6th of June D-Day was just the beginning. And I think the fact that we have these graves here of, of Royal Navy sailors and, and other personnel is a reminder of that vital link back with the UK across the channel and just how important that was to the success of the whole endeavour. Thinking about the practicalities and uh, use the word organisation there for this operation also makes me think about organising the dead and uh, mm. perhaps learning from the past, um, from previous landings of Italy, Africa, uh, not only in terms of the, the military action but how you deal with um, the bodies mm. that are, are left behind as a consequence of it. Um, I was reading an interesting account from... Uh, someone who was part of a tank troop that landed that day at Gold Beach talking about um, the methodical way that the stretcher bearers uh, picked up corpses, placed them in rows and feet towards the sea, run one row for British soldiers and another for the Germans. And uh, similar accounts also of that kind of methodical process at Juno Beach. And we visited a whole series of D-Day cemeteries today. Um, this previously was known as Gold Beach Cemetery even though actually many of those who died on Gold Beach aren't buried here, they were taken to Bayeux. I've been very struck by the fact that there were far more visitors in Ronville and, and Benny, and particularly down at Juno Beach. We went to the Juno Beach Centre and, and had a look around there. Lots of visitors there. I wonder what would have happened had they retained those original names for Hermanville, Sword Beach Cemetery, and for this cemetery, Gold Beach Cemetery, whether tourists would be more inclined to come and visit and to discover the stories that there are here. I think by concentrating so many graves to Bayeux, one of the effects perhaps has been that Bayeux has become a focal point for people visiting and, and paying their respects to the Commonwealth dead of the Normandy campaign. After travelling from the eastern landing beaches to the west, we went inland to Bayeux War Cemetery, our final stop of the day. Well, so far, we've followed the story of D-Day itself through some of the cemeteries. We've been to, to Ronville and seen the graves of paratroopers. We've been to cemeteries close to Gold, Juno and Sword Beaches, the landing beaches, uh, and seen those burial places. But now we've come inland. We've come to Bayeux, the Norman city, and we've come into Bayeux War Cemetery, and passing these rows and rows of graves with the same date of death, the 6th of June, 
1944. Yes, there are 750 graves here dating from D-Day. So that's the highest concentration of any of our cemeteries. Bayer was the first city to be liberated on the night of the 6th of June. The Germans moved out, the British troops came in the next day to much rejoicing from the locals. And from then on in, it became uh, the base for British and Commonwealth operations, uh, including, of course, the creation of this cemetery. Yeah, we're not far from the, the, the centre of town here. We can, in fact, we can see the spires of the of the Norman Cathedral, by a cathedral in the distance. Uh, and the road that's passing by the cemetery was built by the British Army soon after D-Day to help with the traffic congestion. Um, it was very, very busy then. It's still busy now with cars and, and lorries going past. Uh, in fact, now it's called Boulevard Fabian Ware, named <laughs> after the founder of the Imperial War Graves Commission. But what strikes one most clearly as you're moving uh, through the cemetery is the vast scale of it and the number of graves that date from after D-Day makes you realize that that one day is just the start of a much larger and longer story. Uh, I think many of the tourists that we can see walking through the graves, pausing, looking at the inscriptions and the, the names and the dates, you know, I think many of the, those stories of D-Day are so well known now um, through the films, the famous names, those famous incidents that we all know so well. But actually, when you come here, you can't help but leave with the realization that that's just part of a much, much bigger story. episode we continue our journey through Normandy, exploring some of the less well-known cemeteries here and discovering stories of nurses, poets, locals and the families who remember today. The Legacy of Liberation podcast was brought to you by the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. The presenters were Glyn Prosser and Lucy Cat, and the producer was Jack Sheeran.